Welcome to Nostrum, the debate soap opera, where deontology is more than just an idea, it's a rebuttal by Jules O'Shaughnessy and the Nostrumite. Before we get going, we do like to remind you that just as Jules and the Nostromite began writing these episodes at the beginning, you should begin listening at the beginning. All of our previous episodes are available at www.jimmenick.com. One of these days I'm going to listen again to the introduction that plays before I begin talking before each episode. I have no idea anymore what that thing says. For all I know, it's totally been corrupted and it says the opposite of what I wanted to say. So someday I'll get around to it, but not just yet. To remind you where we are, we have begun the Manhattan Lodestone original Baganza, and I guess now we are in full swing. An important event like this, of course, warrants multiple episodes, and within each episode, multiple parts. So we have a three-parter tonight with episode 71, Musical Chairmanship. Three days of peace and love and music and nothing but peace and love and music. They've closed the New York Turnpike. Breakfast in bed for 500,000 people. The brown acid is a bummer, man. No, 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 wait a minute. That was Woodstock. Wrong generation. Uh, Except maybe for Seth B. Obamash and Amnia Nutmilk, neither of whom we wish to see skinny dipping in the Aquarian Nation mudflats. So let's try this. Frankie. The voice, old blue eyes, chairman of the board. Now, that's really the wrong generation. Or or is it? Melanie singing Candle in the Rain maybe is dated as a Millie Vanilli CD, but Frank Sinatra has never gone out of style. Not since he stepped behind that first microphone in Hoboken. Never for a minute, even in the periods between comebacks and label changes and bum marriages, even interred for the ages. It's hard to believe that he and Woody Allen were once married to the same woman. At different times, of course. The mind boggles, eh, Mr. Previn? All right, then. Frank Sinatra. What better way to kick off the Manhattan Lodestone original Vaganza? All other Vaganzas are extra. We miss you, Frank. Après François Albert, Le Drought. Part one. Well, maybe this particular lady is a tramp. There are three rounds in both Policy and LD on the opening Friday of the Manhattan Lodestone Original Vaganza. The first two of these are random, while the third is the first of the rounds paired on the basis of the contestants' previous records. This means that while the first two schematics can be created quickly, from the third round on, the computer will have to chug away through all the variables of how people are doing and who has already hit whom and who is able to judge whom from where. All the previous ballots must be in before the next round can be assigned, and from the third round on, the proceedings move at a stately pace following the peppier execution of the random rounds. 
But there is random, and there is random. And one aspect of tournaments that should be almost completely random is the assignment of the judges. While there is a feature in the standard tab room software that allows a rating system so that the most experienced judges are hearing the most difficult rounds, for example, high point to two rounds where one student might break and the other can change back into its fish t-shirt, even that does not truly make the assignments that much less than accidental, given the numbers of judges and students participating. The odds of hitting a certain judge more than a handful of times in a lifetime should be very low. But the odds don't necessarily work the way we instinctively think they should. Random assignment of judges does not mean that, in a given year, you will randomly work your way through the rotating judge pool until you've been heard by all the judges equally. What random means is that you will end up with a parabolic statistical distribution that translates into being judged by one particular judge more than any other, with all the other judges falling into progressively lower frequencies. If you're good at forensics math, you can no doubt do the numbers yourself. And Jasmine Maru, much to her horror, is good enough at the forensic math to realize that it's happened again. As round one nears its end, the schematics are released for the second random round two. Yeah, right, random. There's Jasmine on the schematic, and her opponent is certainly random, except that instead of being some easy-to-beat schlub from East Moses, it's a round Rabinsky who she knows came in second at CFL Nationals last year, and if that isn't bad enough, she is going to be judged by Mr. Dwindle. Dwindle, the father of Chip Dwindle, from Farnsworth Catholic. Dwindle, the judge who is at the top of Jasmine's statistical distribution. Dwindle, the judge who has judged Jasmine 16 times in three years and dropped her 16 times. Dwindle. What's the matter, Jasmine? Grio asked. You look like you're not feeling well. Grio has just walked into the cafeteria from finishing his first round. Jasmine is standing by the door, staring out at nothing. She holds out the schematic he takes it from her and realizes the problem instantly. Dwindle, he says flatly. She nods. Sixteen times, she says, and now going on seventeen. Shades of Rogers and Hemmerstein, Grio says. This isn't funny, Grio. Grio lowers his eyes. I know, he shrugs. Maybe this time he'll pick you up. And maybe this time the rain will fall up. He hates me, Grio, you know that. He doesn't hate you, Jasmine. I don't think anybody hate you. Dwindle hates me, I know it. And look who I'm hitting. Grio looks at the schematic again and his eyes widen. He puts his hand on Jasmine's arm. Don't let it get to you, he says. If you go in there thinking you're going to lose, then you're going to lose. I know this Rubinsky. I beat him twice last year. You can beat him this year. I'm not you, Grio, and you didn't have Dwindle to contend with. I've had plenty of lousy judges, Jasmine. So have you, lousy judges that have dropped you, lousy judges that have picked you up. Dwindle is a lousy judge who's always dropped me. Every time. If you're going to have a lousy judge for the next round, so is your opponent. Don't forget that. He's around Robinsky, which means that he's going to have a fairly complicated case. And I know that he's got an attitude the size of Cleveland. And I know Dwindle, who's not all that bright. Dwindle isn't going to like him. 
you got to dumb down for dwindle. That's got to be your slogan for the round. I've dumbed down for dwindle sixteen times. Make it seventeen. Grio's hand is still on Jasmine's arm, and they both realize it at the same time. He pulls it away quickly. I walk you to your round, he says. I'm not on to B-flight. Okay, I'll get my stuff. She walks away from him over to the night and day table, marked by a pile of backpacks and coats and two or three Mountain Dew bottles. Griot's eyes devour her every move as she walks. Keglers in the night. They do show up all the time, although we haven't paid them much attention so far. It's a long trip for them, but they make it almost every weekend from their bunkers on Breed's Hill or the Back Bay or the North Side or wherever Massachusetts gather when they're not at forensics tournaments. Occasionally they have their own festivities, but as often as not, they're rubbing elbows with the hoy and the polloi of their more westerly neighbors from New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, at places like the Andrew Johnson or the Lodestone Veganza. They are easily recognized by their chief characteristic, their indoor sports habits. During the dinner break after round two on Friday, Tildy-M-Dash, star debater from Algren on the Beach in Massachusetts, joins her team at their table in the cafeteria. After the usual salutations and comparisons of results so far, plus the odd comment on the cold, chewy veganza pizza, she asks about their coach. He's lining everything up, one of the junior girls says. Any word yet? Tildy asks. There certainly is, Nip Sazo says, coming up from behind her. Nip Sazo is the coach of Algren on the beach. He has a big smile on his face, making him look something like an enlarged leprechaun with his red hair and bright green eyes. Hi, Nips, Tilda says, turning to face him. She is a tall, dark-haired girl in appearance somewhat resembling Morticia Adams, only slightly more funereal. It's still there, he tells her and the rest of the team. About five minutes from our hotel. Open all night. Ten pins, of course. What's it like, Tilda asks. Clientele-wise, I mean. Nip nods. They're a good-looking bunch, he says. Teams mostly, leagues, no crack dealers that I could see. We'll be safe. Will we be able to get on? Nip nods again. I was able to reserve a lane for eleven o'clock. That should give us plenty of time. Tildy grimaces eleven. It's going to make it pretty late. We do have to debate tomorrow. Are we here to debate, or are we here to bowl? Nip Sazo asks. The Algren on the beachers exchange glances then look up at Nip. To bowl, they reply in one voice. Awesome, Nip replies, sitting down and preparing to dive into some of the cold, chewy veganza pizza. If I can't make it there, I can't make it anywhere, but at least I can audit. I don't know if I should be singing these. The cold autumnal rain has not stopped, nor has its fury. In the old Manhattan lodestone building, some of the rooms are so solidly sealed from the outside world that they might as well be four walls of solid brick. In other rooms, the window frames rattle steadily from the force of the fierce wind, reminding their inhabitants that there is a world beyond the artificial boundaries of forensics. Beyond forensics. Do you really think there is such a place, Toto? Where teenagers don't find themselves in classrooms on Friday nights and all day Saturday, and in the case of the Vaganza Sunday as well, if they're lucky enough to break. Lucky? Is that good luck? 
Why do they do it week in and week out? What is the attraction? What is the ineluctable pull? As Tara Petskin makes her way along the streets of Manhattan, the hood of her yellow slicker over her head, her body hunched over to keep the icy rain out of her face, she has absolutely no answers to those questions. On a miserable Friday night like this, she could have rented a video and sat on her warm couch wondering why Gene Siskel put Kingpin in his top ten list for 1997, or read the three chapters of Bleak House that her AP English teacher has assigned her. Is there any greater joy for the counter-Dickensian, short of the death of Little Nell, than Esther's losing bout with the pox and the resulting scarring? Tara could have even gone to bed early to make up for her sleeplessness the night before. Warm sheets, warm blankets, and a soft, feathery pillow under one's head. <sighs> but instead she has taken the train down to Manhattan to watch the Vaganza. She should be arriving just in time for the third policy round. As she hustles up the outer steps of Lodestone High School, she imagines that if she and Invoice were still a team, right now they would be 2-0. and oh. Invoice O'Connor. As she pulls open the outer door of the high school against the wind, she wonders what she will do if she sees him. If. When. She can't miss him since she hopes to hitch a ride in the Vale of Ignorance bus home tonight. What will she say? What can she say? And what about Lisa Tort? What can Tara say to her? She has to say something. She has to start going to the AP Euro class. Any more cuts and she'll be in trouble. And there's also the issue of the debate team. If Tara can't have Seth and she can't have invoice, she has decided she can still have debate. Somewhere on Vale's team there's a partner for her. Someone unhappy with their present situation who would kill their favorite puppy to get a chance to debate with someone at Tara's level to become, like her, a master of the debate universe. Can I help you? The guard inside the door asks her. Tara pulls off her sodden coat and shakes out the gallons of water that are sticking to it. I'm just an observer, she says, pulling off her eyeglasses and drying them on the end of her policy rules t-shirt. She is momentarily blind without them, so she doesn't notice the guard nodding her admission into the building. But she doesn't expect otherwise. Of course she's here to observe the tournament. Why else would a teenager in her right mind be out on a night like this? Was there actually any reason for the Sinatra nonsense at the beginning of this episode? Will Dwindle Pear drop Jasmine for a record 17th time? Will the Algren on the beach team members break 200? What will Tara say when she runs into invoice? And so we bid a fond farewell to our next episode, Sigmoidoscopy, belittling test for the terminally decrepit or a pair of Freudians in Ireland. <laughs>